Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital culture and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Ken Friedman about WFMU and the FMA's origins. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining us on Radio Free Culture. Hi, Cheyenne. Would you like to start by introducing yourself? I'm Ken Friedman, station manager, general manager, and program director, and DJ at WFMU. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about WFMU. Give us some context. Oh, geez. Uh, WFMU is an independent uh, public radio station known for uh, experimentation and spontaneity and uh, technical innovations and interesting uh, approaches to copyright. Yeah, so speaking of interesting approaches to copyright and technological innovations, WFMU is where FMA came from. So can you tell me a little bit about how the idea for the FMA came to be? Yes, well, we have to go back to client number nine, then Governor Elliot Spitzer, later known as client number nine, (laughs) and he got a massive settlement over payola from the largest radio stations and uh, record companies operating in New York State, and it became a, a, a large pot of money and they decided to uh, give the money out philanthropically in order to encourage independent music. They set up the New York State Music Fund, and we got a large grant from the New York State Music Fund to set up what we at the time described as a pod-safe music library, um, as well as to put on a whole bunch of free uh, musical events throughout the New York area, which we did. And uh, that pod-safe music library evolved into what we now call the Free Music Archive. And the rationale for it at the beginning was um, when we got the grant, It was during what I now call the CARP Wars, C-A-R-P, which stands for Copyright Arbitration Royalty Panel. And there was a big brouhaha over what webcasting royalty rates were going to be for any radio stations that were streaming their music programming on the web. And it looked like it was going to be unaffordable. For a long time when that fight began, it really looked like the record label industry, the RIAA and Sound Exchange, we're trying to drive everybody out of the business of radio and audio streaming, except for the very, very largest players. And we really were worried about that. And a lot of people really were worried about that. That ended up not happening, thank goodness. But we were so worried about our ability to continue streaming online that I wanted to have a large, good digital music library that gave us and gave other broadcasters and podcasters and producers the ability to do what we had been doing all along using affordable licenses. So that was the rationale. Yeah, so the FMA hosts tracks that have a variety of licenses, um, none of which can be classified as all rights reserved, you know, traditional copyright. Even the strictest FMA-only one allows for free download and sharing. Why are these different from traditionally copyrighted songs? Uh, Because these copyrights are flexible, and it depends on how you're using it. It's not just a black and white, either you pay for this or you're stealing copyright, which is the standard copyright. These alternative copyright licenses say things such as, you can use this for free if you're using it non-commercially, and you attribute the creator, Um, you know, and then any other number of variations of these alternative licenses. 
it's not, you know, it's what they say in Creative Commons is um, some rights reserved as opposed to all rights reserved. Yeah, I think that that's really nice that artists now have a tool to use that's more standardized than just saying, yeah, you can use it. We think our label's okay with that, or we think, you know, this is legal. I know I spoke with Kevin McLeod about that, and he said he just made up a license before Creative Commons came along. So Yeah, we sort of started <laughs> doing that as well. We sort of created our own licenses before we started using Creative Commons licenses. The first, the first alternative license that we used actually uh, wasn't for song files. It was for um, a streaming, um, which we set up at the beginning of the Carp Wars, even before we got the grant to set up the Free Music Archive. So for those files, did you usually just grab live sets or were those tracks that were submitted by artists? How did you... Oh, you mean the first license that we implemented? <laughs> no, the very first license we implemented that we still use was in response to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is um, the law, the 1996 federal law uh, that laid down all sorts of stipulations and gave the right to the Copyright Office to set rates. And it made illegal... Uh, on a federal basis, all sorts of standard things that radio stations have done for decades, things that would boggle your mind, including what's called pre-publication, which amounts to um, going on the radio and saying, and now here's a track from that new Fugazi demo tape. Um, here's a track from the new Radiohead album. Uh, this was actually made illegal because in 1996, Congress, not understanding what it was doing, um, decided that if online radio stations could simply announce what they were going to play, people would hit the record button right away at that moment and get a perfect digital copy. And the law was so poorly thought out that they said, you're not allowed to say what the next song you're going to play. But once that song starts playing, it's illegal to not identify it online. So they set up these ridiculous laws that were very, very difficult to follow, if not impossible to follow, that also flew in the face of broadcasting tradition as, as it's existed for almost 100 years um, in North America. So we set up a waiver that we got from record labels and artists telling us that all their material could be used. We didn't have to pay attention to the uh, DMC restrictions for all of their music. And we, the first time we sent it out, we got about 1,000 approvals and I think one rejection and the second time we sent it out it was pretty similar all these record labels and artists who wanted to be exposed by WFMU and wanted us to be able to continue using their music on the air the same way we've been using it all along yeah so when did WFMU start streaming we started streaming in 97 we, we put our website up in 93 and actually in 93 um, that was really our first alternative licensing. It's funny you should ask that because in 1993, when we first set up our website, one of the very first things we did is we set up this thing called the WFMU Jukebox, where we approached about a dozen artists who we were playing, um, obviously lesser known but great artists, and asked them if we could put up a song for download on our brand new website. And this was when the web wasn't even a year old. And they all said yes. And we had this thing called the WFMU Jukebox with, I think, .ai files. Um, <laughs> for download. And unfortunately, the archive.org's Wayback Machine doesn't have a copy of that page anymore. I would love to see that page. But yeah, we just got email and verbal approvals like, hey, is it okay if we use this song on our brand new website? Have you heard of the web? We have a web page. <laughs> is it okay if we put your song on it? And they all said yes. That's great. So yeah. Yeah. So you've, you're still continuously streaming all the time and you have actually terrestrial broadcasts and web-only broadcasts now, right? 
Yeah, we have three FM stations, and WFMU proper broadcasts over those FM stations, and then we have WFMU proper as one of our six channels, and then we have another five channels of programming, most of which are automated um, at least part of the time. All right. So your intentions when you started the FMA were to create PodSafe music available for anybody with an internet connection. Right. Now people are using this music for video, for video games, for hold music, to play at their stores. Like, did you anticipate um, this diversity of uses? No, not at all. We didn't anticipate at all what happened with the Free Music Archive, which is fine. Um, and I think it's even good. I mean, I'm glad that people are using it at all. Uh, they're not using it in the way that we thought, because we thought that it was going to be used as the secret weapon to fight the man on the webcasting royalty battleground. And as it turned out, that issue calmed down. Sound Exchange started getting almost all of its money from two companies, Pandora and uh, Sirius XM. And as long as you reported to them and sent them a nominal fee, they really didn't care about all the other stations out there. So that turned into just an ongoing issue that we could deal with. But meanwhile, the Free Music Archive started getting used uh, in other ways, mostly by audio and video producers looking for music to include in their non-commercial projects. Um, but also podcasters use it. And uh, I mean, I've seen White House tapes and I've seen or White House videotapes and videos made by other radio stations and universities using the music. So that's great. It still exists for the original purpose that it was set up. And still in my mind, you can't be too safe about copyright issues. <laughs> and I'm still concerned that these laws are still out there, despite the fact that this battle didn't go the way so many people expected it to, which is great. But there's still these terrible laws on the books. The DMCA is just awful and it has not been repealed yet. And there's all sorts of rules out there that could be used as a cudgel against all sorts of non-commercial and public radio stations and independent webcasters and hobbyist webcasters. So the Free Music Archive does exist for that, but that is true. It's not getting used on that basis day to day. But th that's one of the reasons why I really still believe in it and uh, I'm really 100% committed to keeping it going. And meanwhile, it's serving a super important purpose to producers and artists. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, when looking at the Creative Commons options as opposed to options for publishing and licensing tracks that are all rights reserved is a nightmare, especially with the digital music environment right now. Everything's up in the air. So. Yeah, and dealing in my job with broadcasters and DJs and artists and producers and filmmakers, there's something I called copyright psychosis. I've seen it. I mean, a, a really serious affliction that I've seen destroy people and leave them a bubbling mess on the floor. Yeah, copyright is so incredibly complicated. And uh, tools like the Free Music Archive, you know, are something that are allowing creators and makers to use music for their own projects without getting caught up in this morass. A, a single piece of music might have, I think, as many as seven different rights associated with it depending on how it's being used. Some of those rights have licenses for them. Some of them don't have licenses at all. And, and the right needs to be negotiated um, independently. And oftentimes that right needs to be negotiated with more than one party, with uh, the performer as well as the composer, as well as the master recording owner. Yeah, and if it's an orphan work and you can't track down the original author, I, yeah, just right. gets yeah. down or the rabbit hole fast. Yeah, or orphaned works is another <laughs> huge gray area. Pre-1972 recordings, rec American recordings that were made before the phono right became a federal law in 1972, that's another huge gray area. 
Yeah, so there's a lot still to be ironed out with this. Yeah. The FMA is not like a lot of other Creative Commons archives in that it takes a curated approach. Why did you all make that decision when you established it? Well, because we looked at the other Creative Commons sites that existed there, and it became apparent to me right away that there was a self-filtering reality happening on the other Creative Commons music sites, which was that it was easiest to get Creative Commons licensed music if it was music made by one person um, or perhaps two people. So there was a preponderance of certain kinds of music on these other Creative Commons music sites, electronic music, laptop music, folk music, types of music that could be made by one person. What there was not were ensembles and certain types of music, you know, like rock and roll and jazz, <laughs> like really basic genres that were completely missing from this field. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of the reason that we wanted to have a, a curated approach is because we wanted it to be much, much more diverse than the music that was already available in droves um, on Creative Commons music sites. Oh, and jam bands, of course, jam bands, there were always tons of them on archive.org, for example. So it was a fairly limited array of music that was available, and, and we wanted to counteract that. And we've been able to counteract that a bit. I mean, I guess not as much as I had hoped, to be honest. Uh, what we found also was that the idea of Creative Commons music was completely alien to most touring bands that would come through WFMU to perform. And it became clear that the self-filtering process was very much at work, and, and the only musicians who knew about Creative Commons music were musicians who were legally minded or technically minded. And if they were more artistically or purely musically minded, they probably didn't know about Creative Commons music and didn't understand any of this stuff. Yeah, a lot of musicians that I know know very little about the rights that are applied to their own work when right. they get signed. So, Yeah, and most DJs and radio station owners don't understand anything. All they know is that there's these companies they have to pay, and they're not even sure exactly what they're paying for. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of the Free Music Archive? Where do you want it to go? I would like it to become an even more useful tool for uh, the people who are using it, which, um, as we've said, are you know producers and creators and makers and you know people who want music for their creative projects, as well as perhaps podcasters and uh, people who are making all sorts of productions like that. And I would like it to be more useful to them. Um, I would like the I would like the array of music on there to be more diverse than it is. I would like it to be much easier to discover things. Um, that's, I think, the biggest problem on the Free Music Archive, besides the obvious technical problems with the days when it just won't work, which are getting rarer and rarer, thanks to Ross. Thank you, Ross. But it's very hard to discover music and, and find the types of things that you're looking for if, if you're looking for music for a production, for example. I think that's the biggest challenge. I'm really looking forward to a new and better app. I think that's super important. You know, people are using the web less and less. Many people are just declaring that the web is dead. It's over. And I understand what they're saying because I spend way more time on my phone listening to music, looking at movies, <laughs> reading books, reading emails than I do on my computer. So, yeah, uh, but I'm really optimistic about it. We have money to redo the app um, thanks to the National Endowment of the Arts. And we are making steady progress, I think, in uh, the improving the search and the discoverability. Now's your chance to uh, call out what sorts of artists you'd like to contact us about submitting their music, if you would like to. Um, good music. That's, that's what we're looking for. I want more good music. Like I said, that there's types of music that there's tons of Creative Commons music available in, like electronic and folk. 
and there's less full ensemble music. And, and I guess I, I would like more full ensemble music of all sorts, especially playing real instruments. Nothing against laptops and electronics. Um, and I love electronic music and I love laptop music. So, you know, please don't get the wrong idea. But there, there will always be that coming our way. What there is not coming our way are jazz bands, jazz music, full ensembles, um, people playing entirely um, instruments or with, you know, not, not entirely electronic that kind of thing. I mean, there's, there's uh, genres of music in the U.S. where the musicians have been so ripped off and abused for so many decades, like jazz and blues, you know, that jazz and blues musicians are really distrustful of any kind of license being put in their face. So that results in very little Creative Commons music being available in those two genres. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to have every genre represented. I, I want more of what we don't have. basically don't we all (laughs) yeah all right um those are all the questions i have for you this morning and if you have anything else to add feel free to uh people should feel free to email me about any of these topics Uh, these are all things i'm really interested in and you know i'm always interested in hearing what people think my email address is can at wfmu.org all right thanks so much thanks Mm -hmm. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive, and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby, and can be found at the Free Music Archive. For more information about WFMU, please visit wfmu.org.